This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. This is, in fact, our first program of the new year, and we start out the new year in love. At least somewhere in the new Beatles CD titled, Love. And ladies and gentlemen, you will be in love too, I think, when you uh, get a hold of this new effort of George Martin and his son, Giles. This has uh, been getting generally excellent reviews, and we certainly agree with uh, those who give this two thumbs up. In fact, I can't think of a better way to start 2007 than with this 30-second excerpt. Gargano in Live Daily. While the results are magnificently modern in their translation of the legendary band, they're even more spectacular when coupled with the Las Vegas production to which they're the soundtrack. Evidently, there's a production of Cirque du Soleil, which is using this as background music and somehow making, uh, making it all more than the sum of its parts. But then considering how good this soundtrack is, it would have to be a pretty crappy show to ruin it. But it's been done. We like this, uh, this new CD so much, we think we're going to use it for all of our bumper music on today's program. We're going to try and do some end-of-year stuff, and uh, one thing that caught our eye, I believe it was on the Google Splash page, was uh, a compendium of 10 great astronomic photos of the year. In segment two, we're going to talk to the man responsible for putting those pictures out there, at least collecting them in one spot. That would be Dr. Phil Plate, astronomer and purveyor of the rather amusing website badastronomy.com. These pictures really have to be seen to be believed. So this is your warning. Between now and the start of segment two, see if you can't get yourself plopped down in front of a computer so you can dial these up while we're talking about them. And if you're driving, do not attempt this on your laptop. Let us start the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in our case is January 4th. On January 4th, 1642, Isaac Newton was born. In addition to theorizing about planetary orbits and gravity, the English scientist was the first to examine the possibility of satellites. Newton hypothesized that a cannonball shot at high velocity would eventually orbit the Earth. And somewhat coincidentally, on January 4, 1958, the Russian satellite Sputnik 1, the first man-made object in space, finally fell back to Earth after 92 days in orbit. Although Newton had said it could be done in the 1600s, it took uh, Earthmen until 1957 to actually make it a reality. 
On January 4, 1965, in his State of the Union message, President Lyndon B. Johnson reaffirmed U.S. commitment to support South Vietnam in fighting communist aggression. What this translated into was the U.S. carrying the ball in that war in Southeast Asia up until 1973. And on January 4, 1996, General Motors announced that it will release an electric car, the EV-1, in the coming fall. According to our source book, the car met with modest success. That statement does not even begin to summarize what happened to the electric car. We will refer you back to our archives, radioparallax.com, if you missed our interview with Chris Payne, whose documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car?, tells you the real scoop. And by the way, our source for almost all of the items that you hear in On This Date in History come from a publication by the History Channel, which is titled Today in History, a day-by-day review of world events. This is published by Tahabi. Our quote of the day comes from uh, Radio Parallax's former nemesis, Ben Stein, the speechwriter slash TV personality slash game show host, was quoted recently in the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel saying, the first step in getting the things you want out of life is this, decide what you want. We think Ben Stein's a pretty smart guy, and we're going to return to that quote a little bit later in the program. And by way of review, your host did take on Ben on his own television program, Win Ben Stein's Money. And after appearing on that program on the Comedy Channel, yours truly did come home with $1,700 of Ben's money. Our twin statistics of the day are as follows. According to Business Week, counting TV, print, billboards, product placement, and other sources, the average American encounters 3,000 marketing messages a week. And according to a report by Public Citizen, since 1998, about 45% of departing members of Congress have become lobbyists. Our humor item of the day comes courtesy of the Sacramento News and Review, which noted in last month's uh, issue, the December 21st issue, (laughs) there, there were several hypothetical TV holiday specials which could be even worse than the real ones being purveyed. The SNNR asked us to consider it a blessing that the following offerings never made it out of development. There was the HBO special Mad Max, Festival of Lights. There was the Food Network special Iron Chef, Fruitcake. We're grateful that they never produced the Fox News holiday special Everybody Hates Christ. Ditto for the NBC offering Kramer Knows Kwanzaa. And our personal favorite, we're pretty glad that Access Sacramento never got around to airing a retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Brown Christmas. Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown, he's a clown, that Charlie Brown, he's gonna get caught, just you wait and see. Why's everybody always picking on me? Actually, we're sorry we did not get a chance to talk to... Colonel Charlie Brown here on uh, on Radio Parallax. But uh, we're pretty sure that we haven't heard the last of him and that he'll be back again to again challenge John Doolittle. 
And uh, I, I predict here, this is our first prediction for 2007, you will hear Charlie Brown here on KDVS. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. Week magazine reported last week was a good week for hygiene after the city of Las Vegas, Nevada, in an attempt to crack down on homelessness, made it illegal to sleep within 500 feet of unattended feces. We're not sure what the rule is going to be for attended feces, but I guess we're going to leave that up to legislators there in Las Vegas. You may need to clear that up before you go down to check that Cirque du Soleil love special. And it was uh, conversely a bad week for U.S.-Mexican relations last week when it was revealed that a company that helped build the 14-mile border fence between California and Mexico has now agreed to pay nearly $5 million in fines for hiring hundreds of illegal immigrants. You've just got to love this story. Golden State Fence Company promised to clean house after an immigrant check in 1999. But federal prosecutors now say that a recent check found that as many as one-third of the company's 750 workers were in the country illegally. That's right, constructing a fence to keep out illegal immigrants. And part two of the bad week for Mexican-U.S. relations came uh, when the town of Pahrump, Nevada, outlawed the display of any foreign flag unless it's accompanied by an American flag. The bill's sponsor, Michael Miraglia, said he was angered by the nationwide immigration protests last spring at which some marchers waved Mexican flags. In Pahrump, we had Mexican restaurants closed that day, Miraglia complained. Only one restaurant stayed open. And in all honesty, we're not sure how having to wave an American flag with your protesting Mexican flag is going to keep the restaurant open to service Mr. Miraglia and his fellow legislators there in Nevada. But, uh, well, we don't understand a lot of things that politicians do. But finally, it was an ugly week last week for traveling with Grandma. After a woman going through screening of carry-on baggage at L.A. International Airport put her one-month-old grandson on the conveyor belt. According to the article, a startled screener eyeballing baggage and shoes saw the child's skeleton on her x-ray monitor and pulled him out. Said an airport official, this was an innocent mistake by an obviously inexperienced traveler. All right, we also enjoy the, uh, the Only in America file, courtesy of The Week magazine. We especially like this one. Christmas shoppers flocking to a sale at an Ohio department store refused to leave when an electrical fire filled the store with thick smoke. In fact, even as they battled the blaze at Dillard's in the Great Lakes Mall, firefighters had to block the doors to keep bargain hunters from coming in. Said Fire Battalion Chief Joe Busher, it was amazing. Even though there was heavy smoke in there, they all wanted to stay and shop. 
Let's return back to that Ben Stein quote about deciding what you want. It seems pretty clear that on Election Day in November, the American people expressed a, uh, well, I'd say a pretty definite desire to not continue things as they are in Iraq. Oh, there were other factors involved in the GOP getting thumped, but uh, all the pundits seemed to agree that the war in Iraq was making everyone very unhappy. So how can it be then that uh, the Bush administration is calmly, methodically planning how it is we're going to expand the war in the Middle East? And no, we're not talking about the war in Afghanistan, the war where they went to go capture Osama bin Laden. Remember him? The guy who attacked the United States 1,940 days ago? Yeah, he, he's still at large somewhere in the borderlands between Pakistan and Afghanistan, but we're pursuing a war, not over there, in Iraq. And by the way, they did hang the former leader of Iraq since our last program, Saddam Hussein, a person who did not, in fact, attack us on September 11th. And we'll have more to say about that in a moment, but, uh, but you know, to quote from article by Warren Strobel and Nancy Yosef, writing from McClatchy Newspapers, is reported in the, the Bee on December 29th. Bucking public opinion and advice from the Blue Ribbon Iraq Study Group, President Bush appears poised to order significantly more U.S. combat troops to Iraq as part of his new plan to reverse the deteriorating course of the war. As we've reported on this program and other people across the country have noticed as well, there is no plan as to how we're going to define victory in Iraq. And since there never has been a plan as to how we're going to define victory in Iraq, people need to ask the question of how it is that significantly more U.S. combat troops are going to bring about an undefined victory. Second paragraph in the article, a, quote, surge, unquote, of 20 to 30,000 combat troops would, in essence, be a last-ditch effort to avoid defeat by securing Baghdad and tamping down sectarian violence, allowing Reconstruction to commence. It's a risky tactic. Next paragraph. Critics, including many retired high-ranking army officers, say more troops aren't the answer. Other military experts say more forces will help only if the deployment is coupled with a political plan that forces compromises by Iraq's warring Shiite and Sunni Muslims, compromises they've long been unwilling to make. John Dean, on this program and elsewhere, has uh, made it clear that a long time back on the track here, the Bush administration's uh, bad behavior has pushed uh, George W. into the category of impeachable offenses, and he's recommended that uh, we need to consider maybe doing something about that. To quote from Newsweek magazine's Conventional Wisdom Watch, looking back on 2007, said the conventional wisdom about George W. Bush, well, last year's CW said, nowhere to go but up. Once again, he confounded expectations. Oh, and I'd like to make a brief aside about someone else on this uh, CW list, Vladimir Putin. In the wake of a Russian journalist being shot or poisoned with polonium or major Ukrainian presidential candidates getting dosed with huge doses of dioxin, Vladimir the Poisoner, 
is uh, being looked at with a rather jaundiced eye as he attempts to move Russia into the World Trade Organization fold. But I did like the quote from Newsweek. The old conventional wisdom on Putin was the quote from George W. Bush. I looked the man in the eye. I was able to get a sense of his soul. Yeah, that, that's right. Our chief executive likes Vladimir Putin. Said Newsweek, the new CW on Putin was, Polonium man is Stalin 2.0. We hope that these neocons are going to get a spanking from, uh, from Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats as they settle into Congress, but, well, <laughs> we're just going to hope for the best. We do note that in the last couple of weeks, John Edwards has now, uh, has now admitted that he is indeed running for president. Even though when we asked him that last year during his Mondavi appearance, he deflected the question. Yeah, it's hard to believe a lawyer deflecting a question, but, but he did. I tell you, faced with the prospect of John Edwards versus Mitt Romney in 2008, I think I need to take a very extended Costa Rican vacation. I hate to be too pessimistic, you know, but perhaps the country can be saved by a, uh, a double-talking pretty boy lawyer from North Carolina, but uh, I don't know. I have my doubts. Looking forward to 2007, we're hoping to bring, uh, to bring you the purveyorsofsnopes.com, a website that we like very much for its ability to debunk things. We're also hoping to get someone from the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series to talk to us. It's a resource we do rely upon. Oh, and by the way, on next week's program, we're hoping to bring you Cece Goldwater, the granddaughter of the former senator from Arizona, Barry Goldwater, and uh, we're looking very much forward to that. I think I'll go out um, of our first segment today with uh, a quote from Snopes.com, which is especially telling, I think, in, in, in the wake of the Bush administration planning to have a, quote, surge, unquote. Well, that's not an escalation, by the way. That's just a, just a surge over in Iraq. It seems clear the American public does not want an escalation of the war in Iraq, but that is what uh, the planners are planning. This reminds us of a famous quote attributed to Hermann Goering, who supposedly proclaimed at one point that although the people don't want war, they can always be brought to the bidding of their leaders. Snopes.com investigated whether this was an accurate quote, and it turns out it is. The quote that's often cited that doesn't appear in the transcripts of the Nuremberg trials, because although Goering spoke the words during the course of the proceedings, he did not offer them at the trial. His comments were made privately to Gustav Gilbert, a German-speaking intelligence officer and psychologist who was granted free access by the Allies to all the prisoners held in the Nuremberg jail. Gilbert kept a journal of his observations of the proceedings and his conversations with the prisoners, which he later published in the book, Nuremberg Diary. During a conversation Gilbert held with the dejected Goering in his cell on April 18, 1946, as the trials were halted for a three-day Easter recess, Gilbert recorded the former air minister's observations that the common people can always be manipulated into supporting and fighting wars by their political leaders. According to Gilbert, we got around to the subject of war again, and I said that contrary to his attitude, I did not think that the common people are very thankful for leaders who bring them war and destruction. Why, of course, the people don't want war, Goering shrugged. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best that he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece? Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia 
nor in America, nor in England, nor for that matter in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it is a democracy or a fascist dictatorship, or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. Gilbert pointed out, there's one difference. In a democracy, the people have some say in the matter through their elected representatives. And in the United States, only Congress can declare wars. Said Goering, oh, that is all good and well. But voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to do the bidding of their leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they're being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. That was Hermann Goering, the chief of the Luftwaffe and Nazi Reichsmarschall. Sentenced to death by hanging, Goering would cheat the hangman by committing suicide with smuggled cyanide capsules hours before his execution. Anyway, the point of all this, as, as Hermann Goering correctly pointed out, the people don't want war. In particular, currently, the American people do not want this crazy, slipshod, insane operation we're conducting in Iraq. The question that needs to be asked about Americans in 2007 is if, quote, they can always be brought to do the bidding of their leaders, unquote. If the war in Iraq gets expanded, it's time to start talking impeachment, ladies and gentlemen. We'd like to stress at this point that the opinions expressed on this program are those of the host alone and do not necessarily reflect any of the views of the radio station, our sponsors, or in the case of KDVS, the University of California Regents. I'm Douglas Everett, listening to Radio Parallax. Let's take a break. back. Joining us now on the program is someone we promised at the top of the show. His name is Phil Plate. He's a self-described astronomer, writer, and skeptic, and he operates one of our favorite websites titled badastronomy.com. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Phil Plate. Thank you. It, it is Dr. Plate, I take it. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, actually it is. <laughs> and, and Phil, where do you do your astronomy? I'm at Sonoma State University, which is a small teaching college in Northern California, not too far from Davis. And we actually, I'm part of a group that does education and public outreach. We, we develop educational activities and we, we develop uh, outreach products, things to help teach the public and students about astronomy. 
Well, we uh, would recommend all of our, to all our listeners very highly they check out your website, badastronomy.com, particularly because, and the reason we're calling you, is something you've posted here currently, which is just absolutely fabulous. The top 10 astronomy images of 2006, and some of these are just real barn burners. Yeah, I was really, uh, really pleased the way it turned out. This was just an idea I got towards the end of the year. I was seeing a whole bunch of top ten lists, and most of them were really you know, pretty boring, to be honest. You know? <laughs> top ten reasons not to go shopping online this year, stuff like that. Who exactly. Cares? And I thought, you know, I've been getting all these press releases all year long from uh, from different astronomy groups, and I've seen the different astronomy picture of the day posts and things like that. And I thought, well, there have been some pretty cool images. I think it would be neat to put together my own top ten list, not just for images that are you know, pretty, and they're, they're all pretty in some way or another, but the ones that are the most interesting or the ones that are just cool. So you might see the image and go, well, you know, what's the big deal about this? But it turns out, oh, you know what you're looking at here? You're looking at something that's really interesting. And so I started, I thought oh, this will be pretty easy because I'm an idiot. And uh, I started looking through all the images, and I wound up going through a couple of thousand images that I had either online or saved on my computer someplace, and um, narrowed it down to about, actually, to about 20, and then really started to winnow it out. I was really having a hard time. But the 10 I picked, I think, are the 10 are, the, are just the coolest for whatever reason. Well, you know, Dr. Phil, a lot of our listeners are very uh, media savvy, and I'm sure that as they're listening, they can go to their computer, and they can pull up on your website uh, these exact pictures. Now, if they go to badastronomy.com, where would they go from there? Right. The, the main website, badastronomy.com, used to be sort of a static site filled with pages, but then I replaced the front page with my blog, and that changes uh, pretty much every day, if not two or three times a day. Okay. So you can go into the archives, and if you just look under December 2006, it was one of the last posts of that month of the year. Okay. Or you can search for top ten astronomy images in the blog search or something like that. I also have a category called Pretty Pictures. If you click on that, you'll get to my blog entries about, duh, Pretty Pictures. All right. Well, presumably now and, and people listening have gone over to the computer and they're doing exactly that. So this will give us a minute to uh, to do it ourselves and pull them up. And I've got some. Actually, let's let's start with number seven, if we could. A face defaced. I know that you and uh, Richard Hoagland have gone right. around and around on the alleged Mars face and you've got a photo of what it really looks like when you when you really get the um, the high resolution uh, European Space Agency photos and and really cone in on that and see what it looks like. It's obviously not a face. Right now, the deal here is that back in the 1970s, when America sent the Viking probes to Mars, which were uh, the two first landers to go to Mars, uh, there was an orbiter that took all these pictures, and in one of the pictures was a uh, a hill which looked like a face. Now, this thing was about a mile and a half, two miles across, something like that. And it's huge, and in the image, you know, look, it looks like a face. It really does. Mm -hmm. um, but there isn't an astronomer on the planet who really thought this thing could have been a face. However, there were some people who maybe didn't have the scientific training or didn't have sort of the restraint that a scientist would have and said, it's a face, it's built by <laughs> aliens or humans from the future or something ridiculous like that. Now, Richard Hoagland is, is the guy who really jumped on this and has made basically a career out of promoting the idea that this thing is a giant face on Mars. And it's just, it's ridiculous. You can tell in the image that it's not really a face. 
sure enough, when images were, were taken by better cameras in 1999, you could see it wasn't a face. That didn't even slow them down. Now the Europeans have got these incredible uh, high-resolution images, including a three-dimensional topographical image of it. And you can, you can see it's just nothing like a face at all. This won't even slow Hoagland down. He's got a million other things he can, he can talk about that, uh, that, that he promotes. That's all, it's all garbage about aliens on Mars or something like that. But in the end, you know, the face was his basic thing, and it's, it's not a face. Yeah, my favorite was that was all in the news. The Weekly World News, or one of those similar publications, announced that actually this was in conjunction with the fact they'd now found Elvis's tomb on Mars and that the NASA spacecraft were picking up recordings of Hound Dog as they went yeah. into orbit. Yeah. So. Now, this would be the same group that said they found B-29s on the moon, uh, World War II airplanes. <laughs> that was another one of my favorites. Yes. Yeah, they found that uh, hell was in a black hole. Yes. There, I, yeah, I'm familiar with all of these. They've, they've kept me pretty busy over the years, I'll tell you that much. Well, you've got a great whimsical one here on picture number eight, and, and I can't believe this guy managed to set this up so exactly. It shows a man standing on top of a ladder with a paintbrush, and he's, he's superimposed on top of a lunar eclipse. It looks as though he's painting, finishing up painting the moon. It's brilliant. This picture came out um, back in, uh, oh boy, September, I think, of 2006. And when I saw it, I just could not believe it. It was so beautiful. I have tried myself many times to set up kind of a fun picture, knowing that some astronomical event was going to happen. And it is really hard. And, and oh, yeah. this guy's a professional photographer. He's French. And uh, he knew the eclipse was coming up. He knew the moon would be rising around the time he could get the, uh, the, the, the lunar eclipse was starting. So he set this up beautifully. And the picture makes it look like a guy is actually painting the shadow of the Earth on the moon. It's totally excellent. There's no scientific value to this picture. Um, it's, just, it's just cool, and I really liked it. Yes, indeed. You've also got a picture here that uh, was all over the web for a while showing the first direct evidence for dark matter. This kind of takes some explaining, but uh, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating photograph. Can you kind of explain what's in it? This, this is a really funny thing because it came out at the same time uh, as the Pluto controversy, whether Pluto is a planet. And which is a totally ridiculous, non-scientific, media-made controversy. It has nothing to do with anything. And, and yet that's what was grabbing the headlines. In the meantime, we've got this tremendous scientific breakthrough, and it's getting no traction at all in the, in the press, which was really funny. The idea is that we've known for 70 years or so that most of the matter in the universe doesn't glow. It's not, not only is it dark, but it's not even matter as we know it. Matter like made up of atoms, hydrogen, helium, carbon, iron, that sort of thing. It's this weird stuff that's dark. It doesn't interact well with normal matter. You could pass right through it and not even know it. It's, its distinguishing feature is its gravity. It has gravity, and so through that we've been able to detect it. Can I interject a minute? Something that I, that I find very odd about this, what really struck home when it was first explained to me. If you look at a picture of a galaxy, that, uh, you know, that obviously something closer to the center spins faster than something out at the end, or it should. I mean, our inner planets are faster than the outer planets. Right. But actually, uh, I guess astronomers noticed a long time ago that galaxies seem to spin like a giant pinwheel. They're as if, as if it was painted on a board. There's obviously a lot more mass there than, than you can account for. Very strange. But you can see it directly. That's right. This was, um, this was the second way dark matter was discovered, actually, is that galaxies seem to be rotating faster than you would expect, given the mass that we see. And it turns out that 90% of the mass of a galaxy is dark. And there are, there are clusters of galaxies, giant collections like, like cities full of galaxies. 
And these, these clusters, the galaxies in them, are moving faster than you would expect, given the mass that we see. And so we know that 90% of the mass of a cluster we can't see either. And so we knew that there was a lot of this dark matter and that all the matter we see in the universe, we're only seeing 10% of it. 90% of it's invisible. But it's always been this sort of indirect detection. Well, now what they did is they took uh, these images of, a, of a two colliding clusters of galaxies. It's pretty amazing that, that these things actually slam into each other. Now, the gas in the galaxies, when they hit each other, the stuff sort of stops dead. You can imagine um, uh, two, two cars hitting each other head on. They, they both stop where they, where they hit. And you expect to see that, and in this picture, that's precisely what you see. The, the normal gas in the galaxies, or in the, in the clusters of galaxies, has just stopped. But what you also see is that the effects of the dark matter shows that the dark matter has continued on. It's passed right through all the normal matter and is still going. And you can see that because the gravity from this dark matter affects the light behind it. It's like a giant lens. It distorts the, the images of the galaxies behind it. And if you map that out, you can figure out where the dark matter is. I know this all sounds very weird on the radio. Yeah, but right. If you look at the picture and you read what I've written, it, it makes a lot more sense. Right, it's pink in the center and blue on the outside, and, and, the, and the dark matter is why you see the blue being bent around. That's right, and so basically um, this is direct proof that normal matter in collisions of galaxies stops dead and the dark matter keeps going, which shows that the dark matter is there and it, it, it doesn't interact with us or with the universe in the way we, we expect normal matter to. So this is a big deal because this has been postulated for a long time, and this is the first time we've seen such dramatic evidence of it. Well, quite a bit closer to home. When we think of astronomy, we don't always think of our local star, the sun, but you've got two of the top ten photos here related to the sun, and, and they're both just they're both amazing. Number five, uh, evidently this amateur astronomer took a picture of the sun when the space station was between us and the sun, so it's silhouetted, and, and it just had broken off with the space shuttle. So he captured both of them against the background of the sun in amazing detail. It's a phenomenal picture. Now, when you say amateur astronomer, it's kind of funny because the equipment this guy uses is really, really top-notch <laughs> stuff. Um, I was just drooling over his telescope. He's got some great equipment. And he knew that from a certain place on, on Earth in, in France, that he would be able to catch the shuttle and the space station as they were passing directly in front of the sun. And the beauty of it is that about an hour before he took the picture, the shuttle had actually undocked from the space station. So they're actually separated by some small distance, not very much, but enough that you can see them. And in the, in the big picture, you can certainly see they're there. But he took it in such detail that you can zoom in, and you can clearly see the space station and the shuttle. You can even see that it's the space shuttle. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a f phenomenal picture. Again, almost no scientific value to this. But <laughs> holy cow, is it cool! Well, you know, I would say this would be the picture of the year if you hadn't posted three that are even more astounding. And let's let's get to those. Uh, also on the sun, you have this photo uh, where you can actually download this uh, you, this this time lapse of a of a solar flare erupting on the sun and sending off, in essence, a shock wave across the surface of the sun. Amazing sequence. This has been um, seen before, but I've never seen it in this sort of detail or, or anybody's made a movie of it. Basically, um, a solar flare is an eruption on the surface of the sun. It's actually a magnetic disturbance. The magnetic lines of the sun get all tangled up, and at some point they sort of collapse and reconnect, and they release all of the energy that's stored in them. And it's, it's a huge amount of energy. It's, it's billions of times what you might expect from a typical hydrogen bomb. So if you can imagine 
detonating a billion H-bombs at the same time. That's the sort of energy we're talking about here. Yeah. And so there's this circular shock wave that blew out from the center of this thing. And the image itself, you can see the ring of the shock wave. But what's really cool about this is that you can take separate images and string them together and make an animation. And so you see this, this circular wave expanding outward from the flare site. And it's, uh, it's stunning. I, it was really amazed when I saw it. I highly recommend to all of our listeners, you go to the website, you pull this up, and you look at this animation. because it's just, it's, just, it's just really something to see on the surface of the sun. And when you think that the Earth is just a dot compared to the size of this thing, the sun is about um, 100 times the diameter of the Earth. And so you can see on this picture that the Earth would be tiny on yeah. this scale. Yeah, you note that just the width of the ring as it expands is far larger than, than, than our planet. That's right. It's pretty phenomenal. All right, let's get to the second best uh, photograph of the year. We, we talked about this on our program a couple months ago because we were quite blown away by this. People have been looking for water uh, on Mars for quite some time, and we're, we, we know it's there. But we're looking for evidence of some liquid water because the frozen stuff just doesn't excite people too much. And now we have proof that there is, at least briefly, liquid water on the Martian surface. That's basically correct. Um, we know there's water on Mars. We've detected frozen water. It's in the polar caps, for example. We know that liquid water ran on Mars a billion years ago. That was a huge press release a couple of years ago. They found all sorts of evidence of, of flowing water on Mars, catastrophic floods, but nothing recent. And so in these, there are two pictures, actually, here. One is from August of 1999, and the other one is from September of 2005. And what it shows is that in the old picture, it's just a picture of a crater rim. But in the new picture, you can see that there's a light-colored deposit going down the side of the rim. And so it, that must have occurred sometime between August of 99 and September of 05. In fact, they went back and looked at older images, and they found it in February of 2004. So that means they nailed it down to basically within about four and a half years between the first and the second picture. There was an eruption out of the side of this crater for some reason there was some liquid that flowed down the side of the crater and deposited this lighter color material. And they know it was a liquid because of the shape of the gully it was in and all sorts of other factors. Um, the light deposit is probably some sort of chemical that was dissolved in the water, and when the water evaporated away, it left that deposit behind. They've actually seen several instances of this on Mars. This is probably the best one, this picture. And it's, you know, it's, it's not 100% conclusive, but it is, it is pretty good evidence that there is liquid water on Mars. It may have been frozen under the surface and it, it thawed out, or, or it may have just be liquid there and it broke out. Nobody's really sure. But the fact of the matter is there is water on Mars. It, it may be temporary, but it's there. We just have to go looking for it now. Well, we appreciate your scientific objectivity and not saying that it's for certain water, but I did like your quote on, on the website saying that if it was water, then it was only enough to fill in that flow a few Olympic-sized swimming pools. But uh, you wouldn't have wanted to be standing downstream when it erupted from the ground. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can imagine that stuff screaming down at you at 150 miles an hour. Even a bucket full of water would, would, would do some damage. But uh, it was, you know, a few million gallons, I suppose. I'd have to work out the numbers exactly. But it's, uh, it's a lot of water for just, you know, a person standing there. It's not enough to support a colony. But if we can find enough of this water underneath the surface, it could be. Well, it's the official position of Radio Parallax, having talked to a planetary astronomer, William Hartman, and Steve Squires of the, uh, the rover missions, that uh, we think there's water all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. We just have to find it. But it's, it's, looking, it's looking that way, I'll say that. You know, we may still be disappointed, but it's looking pretty interesting at the very least. 
All right, we are speaking with astronomer Dr. Phil Plate about his website, badastronomy.com, which has some fabulous photos looking back at 2006. And the number one astronomy picture, which he has chosen of 2006, really, this is num one of the number one astronomy pictures of all time. Let's talk about this uh, backlit Saturn. The Cassini probe is a very, very sophisticated machine that um, has been orbiting Saturn for quite some time now. It's been bringing back just tremendously beautiful images of the rings and the moons and the planet itself. Um, and so when you look at all of these pictures, you might think it's hard to pick the best one. But it turns out the best one was pretty easy once you see it. <laughs> yeah. This picture came out a few months ago. Cassini was on the other side of Saturn from the sun. So it was looking back towards Saturn and with the sun on the other side. And so you see the planet itself silhouetted. And uh, the rings are being backlit. Uh, and they took a mosaic. It's actually um, several pictures that they've stitched together. And you can see Saturn, um, the atmosphere of Saturn has bent the sunlight around it. So you see sort of a, a dark planet with a, a ring around the planet itself. Then, of course, you see the rings. And they're just spectacular, this gorgeous picture. You see the sun glinting around the edge of the planet itself. There's all sorts of weird, artistic, gorgeous color features on this thing. It, you could go on and on and on about it. It's just beautiful. And really, that's enough. The picture is so stunning when you see it, especially in, in high resolution, um, that that's enough right there to make it the best picture. But what's really, really cool about this is that if you look to the upper left of Saturn, and I have this on the website, I have it in set, and between the main ring system and one of the fainter outer rings, there is a little dot. And that little dot is Earth. It's us, as seen from about a billion miles away. As Cassini was looking back towards the sun, the Earth happened to be in just the right spot to be able to be picked up by Cassini's cameras. And so there it is. You know, there's our entire planet, 8,000 miles wide, a billion miles away. Carl Sagan wrote about this in one of the most eloquent, scientific, uh, but also philosophical pieces I think I have ever read in the English language. It is really that good, where he talks about every human every bo ever born, every criminal, every hero, every crook, every king, everybody who in the entire history of, uh, of, of mankind was born and lived out their lives and died on that little pale blue dot. And, and here it is again, seen in the background of, of Saturn, and it really, really brings home how far away Saturn is, how far we've come and how wonderful it is that we've been able to build these robots. They're, they're our proxy. They're us going out there and looking back towards home and, and telling us what a, what a gorgeous place the universe is. Well, Dr. Phil, we have to agree with you when you say that's why this is the best astronomy image of 2006. It's one of the best of all time. It's just, it is a stunner. 2007 is going to have to come up with something pretty spectacular <laughs> to even come close to this. We'll see by the end of this year how it turns out. Dr. Phil Plate, we enjoyed talking with you very much about this. Uh, but before we go, can you give us a little bit of background what led you to start a website titled badastronomy.com? Well, actually, it started a long time ago. I actually started it in 93, uh, basically because I was just seeing so much on TV and hearing on the radio and in movies where people were just totally destroying astronomy. You know, you don't expect astronomy to be perfect in movies or whatever, but I was hearing it in the news and on newspapers, uh, people making mistakes about 
why the moon looks bigger on the horizon than it does up in the sky and why the sky is blue and people mistaking the word galaxy for universe and all this stuff. And I decided, you know, look, I'm going to sit down and write about this. And the web was brand new. And so I started, I started writing about it. You know, I get 20 hits a day. I was thrilled. 20 hits a month, I was thrilled. Um, but then I got the domain name Bad Astronomy, and it's been getting bigger and bigger. In, um, in February 2001, Fox aired this TV show called Conspiracy Theory, Did We Land on the Moon? And it, it really catapulted this idea that NASA faked the moon landings into the stratosphere. And it's this ridiculously bad documentary uh, with all sorts of garbage evidence in it about NASA faking the moon landings. Totally wrong. I completely destroyed this thing on my website, put up a page about it, and um, got a lot of uh, attention from that. And I haven't really looked back. I've, I've really um, had a lot of fun debunking things like UFOs and astrology, creationism, and, and really anything where science in general and astronomy in particular has been abused by somebody. Well, we've thought all along you're our kind of guy. We hope this will not be the last uh, visit you make on Radio Parallax. Oh, I'd love to come back. Thank you. And, and I, I, was, I was very tickled in a previous interview, uh, which is on your website, when someone asked you about this incident with, the, with the, uh, the Fox program, and you talked about some of the emails you got afterwards, including one that was, had the phrase in it, well, when I was on the moon, <laughs> from, yes. from Charles Duke. Yeah, that really uh, that floored me. I was getting thousands of emails because the page had been linked by CNN and NASA, which I was totally unexpected. I was flooded with emails, and I was reading them. I couldn't answer all of them, but I was reading them. And then, you know, I, I had said at one point something about the, the guys on the moon were looking at rocks and this and that and the other thing, and I got this email from this guy, and he said, well, when we were on the moon, that wasn't really the problem. The problem was this other thing. And I thought, when we were on the moon, and that's when I scrolled down and saw that it was Charlie Duke, who was the, the lunar lander pilot from Apollo 16, and I thought, huh, <laughs> this, this guy was on the moon, and he's emailing me. And I, it was just, that was a, a pretty big moment in my life. And for the record, Charlie says it wasn't fake. That's correct. I've actually talked to three Apollo astronauts now, and they all say that they were there. Well, I believe them. Me too. <laughs> well, Phil Plate, it's been a pleasure, and we, we I, like I say, I hope we'll do this again. we got a lot of debunking we'd like to do, and then have you help us do that. It'd be my pleasure. Thank you. All righty. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly A girl with kaleidoscope
We originally were planning to talk uh, in this, our obituary section, about, uh, well, first of all, the prominent loss of Saddam Hussein to the world, a man that, uh, you know, is not going to, you know, cause a lot of people to cry over his passing. Let's make a note to later in the month of January, take a respectful look back at some of the prominent people who passed in 2006. We definitely want to address the issues of Milton Friedman and John Kenneth Galbraith, two of America's most famed uh, economists leaving the scene. Just want to note an addendum to the passing of Alexander Litvinenko. We talked about uh, Vladimir Putin a few moments back, but uh, looking down at the cover of The Economist magazine, the December 16th edition, which shows a gangster-like Putin wielding a, uh, a gas pump like a Tommy gun on the cover with the caption, Don't mess with Russia. But uh, the hardliner Russian president, former head of the KGB, seeing as how criticizing him seems to get you poisoned with, you know, fantastically large, expensive amounts of polonium, it's curious that uh, The Week magazine reported that uh, Vladimir Putin had scored a big win on trade. Quoting Alex Rodriguez in the Chicago Tribune, it was noted a few weeks back that after a dozen years of negotiating, the United States last week signed off on Russia's entry into the World Trade Organization. Of course, one of our favorite non-astronomy photos of 2006 was the one that appeared in the B on November 20th. Wearing Vietnamese smocks, President Bush, Russian President Putin, and Chinese President Hu Jintao were wearing what appeared to be nightgowns. Anyway, we're going to talk only about the living on today's program. We'll get back to some of those obituaries, as I say, later. Uh, Prominent among uh, people in the news would be our own movie star governor here in California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who managed to break his femur while skiing. Now, as correctly noted by Dorsey Griffith, the Sacramento Bee medical writer, uh, while she quoted a Dr. Noah Finkel, an orthopedic surgeon in in New York, who said that, uh, well... (laughs) The most common cause for a femur fracture is someone crashing into you on the slope. And apparently that's not what happened to the governor. According to reports, the injury occurred while the governor was standing on a ski hill. Noted the article, this has fueled speculation that the Austrian oak's limbs may be brittle because of his admitted past use of muscle-building steroid drugs. Said the governor's surgeon, any suggestion that Governor Schwarzenegger's injury was sustained as the result of anabolic steroid use is wrong and has no basis in fact. His bone was completely healthy and rock solid. Well, from a medical standpoint, uh, I believe that uh, the governor's orthopedic surgeon, Kevin Earhart, protests too much. Although I confess I am not an orthopedic surgeon, in my medical experience... Femurs do not spontaneously snap on ski slopes. And we do hope that in the year 2007, something can be done about, uh, about CEOs running rampant in the United States. Apparently, General Electric shareholders were somewhat uh, disturbed to, to learn recently that uh, their former CEO, Jack Welch, had companies supplied bodyguards, Manhattan apartments, and a country club membership. Well, they didn't, they didn't learn this from financial filings, but from court papers during his messy divorce. 
Welch, of course, compensated himself handsomely after the great job he did cutting hundreds of thousands of GE workers from the company payroll. It's an old trick. And perhaps you noticed this article about Revlon billionaire Ron Perelman. He's filed for... He's filed for divorce from his wife, actress Ellen Barkin, just weeks ahead of a deadline set in their prenuptial agreement. According to the New York Post, the prenup reportedly required Perelman, whose worth is estimated at $6 billion, to pay Barkin $20 million if they divorced before their five-year anniversary, but much more afterward. Barkin, a source told the paper, was knocked for a loop when she was served with the divorce papers. She wasn't expecting it, the source said. Perelman, who's been divorced three previous times, was ebullient on the other hand, telling a friend, I'm a free man again. For those of us who are not CEOs, and I think it's fair to say that, in- that includes most of us, dear listener, uh, well, 2007 is going to be a road paved with some new legislation. Noting Tony Bizjack for the Sacramento Bee, as of the first of the year, it's official. Riding in the trunk of a car is illegal in California. Said the article, the new law aimed mainly at teenagers, (laughs) according to its author, is one of a handful of transportation safety measures which take effect this year. It was noted that the, the transportation bill that garnered the biggest headlines last year, a ban on handheld cell phone use while driving, doesn't take effect now. It will not be implemented until July of 2008. We all have a year and a half to buy that uh, hands-free phone or work up some alternative system. Did note in Jim Sanders' article in the B, there's quite a few other uh, laws that, uh, that will, should be noted. And in the few minutes we have left to us, we think we should advise you of this new le- of these new laws taking effect. Like Senate Bill 531 makes firing a BB gun in a grossly negligent manner a misdemeanor. Per Assembly Bill 2067, well, it's going to ban smoking in common areas such as bathrooms or stairwells that are in workplaces or covered public parking structures. We applaud this. This should make it easier for those people who are addicted to cigarettes to get off that health-ruining habit. Senate Bill 1827 is going to allow joint tax returns by registered domestic partners, which are gay couples or opposite-sex partners age 62 or older. From the It's About Time file, we have Senate Bill 202. This prohibits the purchase or sale of a person's telephone calling records without consent. Personally, I was unaware of the fact that prior to this year, someone could purchase my telephone calling records without my consent. Not that I've got something to hide, of course. I just don't like the idea. And I'm sure you don't either. Also from the It's About Time file, we have Assembly Bill 2251. As of 2007, this bans internet posting of personal information about an abortion clinic's employees, volunteers, or patients with the intent to threaten or harm them. Violators would be subject to civil penalties. And our final two items, I'm just not sure what to think of these. But per Senate Bill... 1578, you're now prohibited 
from tethering a dog to a stationary object for more than three hours. No, and we're not sure how it is they're going to check if Fido has been lashed to the tree for 181 minutes. We do hope that police resources will not be diverted excessively into this matter, and I'm sure we can leave the neighborhood busybodies to police this one. And we're really not sure what to think of our final item for the day, Senate Bill 1806. This bans leaving pets unattended in vehicles when extreme weather, comma, lack of food, comma, or other adverse conditions could cause suffering or harm. Now, if you put Rover in the car and he wants to get out and he's obviously suffering from the fact that he's unable to claw his way through the window, does that make you a, a lawbreaker? Uh, we're not sure. But fortunately, this program has two, count them, two legal scholars at our disposal. And we're going to put this question to both of them for next week's show. That's it for the program. On next week's show, we hope to bring you C.C. Goldwater and talk about her famous grandfather, Senator Barry Goldwater, and her documentary film, Mr. Conservative. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Phil Plate from Sonoma State University, and we hope that he will be returning to the program in the future. I'm pretty sure he will. If nothing else, we want to talk to him about Ophiuchus the little-known 13th constellation of the Zodiac, and the fact that there's an 85% probability that you're not the astrologic sign you think you are. We'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>